Welcome to Live the Light of Yoga, a podcast where we explore yogic principles as they apply to our personal lives and our daily unfolding. I'm your host, Christina Sell. listening we're back we're back how are you doing Britt I'm good I am um gratefully in the moment in Arizona in August for some reason but um here visiting a friend and my mother and um you know leaning into the intensity of the season and the heat over here for sure um but you know personally doing well just grateful to be near loved ones my oldest friend in the world lives here we met when we were nine months old so it's been a been sweet to be with her and my god babies sounds precious yeah still working my way into having some sort of a routine over here (laughs) how are you doing christina i'm doing really good as we've been mentioning or alluding to i've been in the midst of helping my dad get situated in his new digs and in his new um, circumstance. And some of that is also just me getting situated to who he is now at this phase in his life and seeing that as clearly and compassionately as I can so that I can respond in kind. And it's been a good week with that, just seeing what he's likely to do and uh, where some of his limits are and even a silly example, when he first moved here, he wouldn't put his uh, hearing aid in. And every time I'd be talking to him and he couldn't hear me, and I'd be like, Dad, you got to put your hearing aids in. You know, I get a little frustrated like that. And I don't know, a few weeks ago when I'm there in the morning, I just go to the bathroom, get them and hand them to him. You know, he's not going to remember to put them in at this phase. I don't think that's mm-hmm. going to change. Mm-hmm. And he looks at me with this sort of sweet thank you in his eyes. Um, I can leave behind the other part now. And mm-hmm. you know, realizing some of those frustrations of his forgetfulness or a mask of grief mm-hmm. about ways that he's not who I knew him to be. And then feeling the grief instead of the frustration has allowed me to be a lot softer with myself, with him, and with um my responses so it's very tender is the word I think you used it and it's kind of up for me too and that relationship which feels better really than frustration or upset like that so you know I was thinking it would be nice Christina to hear you read the essay that you had mentioned last week that um, was read aloud during the the workshop that you were in um, and I've got you and I set the intention to read that and to sit with it so I'd love to hear you speak those words read them aloud and, uh, and I've got a question for you about it as we bring ourselves to this present moment great I remember when I had the flash of uh, this insight about this essay prior to writing it. I had been down right where you are in the Scottsdale Phoenix area. Mm-hmm. I had just finished a class or a practice with Desiree Rumba. She had a studio there at the time. And I was living up in the mountains of Prescott, Arizona. So it was about two hours or maybe two and a half hours away from 
the desert, well, the low desert. So I was on my way home. We'd had a really nice practice. I remember feeling it was really joyful and good. And I had, as I was driving home, kind of these flashes of different phases in my life and how I uh, had been with my body at these different times of my life. And it just kind of came to me, my drive home. And I went home and I wrote it up. So I was very much remembering that drive home and the idea for putting it down on paper. This is in the introduction, and the title of the essay is Anusara Yoga as a Peace Offering. I am six. My best friend's brother violates my body. I am nine. I'm so sore from gymnastics camp that a hot bath is necessary every morning to get my body moving again. I am 10. The calluses on my hands have ripped from the uneven parallel bars. I'm encouraged to continue training until my hands bleed. I am 11. I'm in a cast due to tendonitis from overtraining. I am 16. I am binging and purging many times a day. I am 17. I am drinking heavily and using drugs. I am 18. I am acting out sexually. I am 20. Due to compulsive overeating, my five foot one inch body now weighs over 155 pounds. I am 26, I am competing in triathlons. I am 29, I am training for a bodybuilding show with hard workouts and strict dieting. I am 30. I hear John Friend tell us that every pose is an offering. A revolution begins to take place inside of me. Perhaps I'm jumping ahead of myself. I had done yoga before this particular workshop. I knew a decent amount about technical alignment and about the forms and shapes of the poses. I was reasonably strong and flexible. I was familiar with yoga philosophy and had done a fair share of chanting. But after five days at the intensive with John, I realized that I had never done yoga from the inside out. I had been approaching my yoga the same way I had learned to approach everything, with force, criticism, and by ignoring my pain. Quite clearly, I saw I had been perpetuating a war against my body so profound that my heart broke open at the tragedy of it. Like any war, there were casualties. After all, one can't wage war on the body without such violence affecting the mind, the spirit, and the emotions. And so I cried. For five days at the intensive, I cried. For three days after the intensive, I cried. I cry now as I write, but for different reasons a year later. I cry now because I am grateful. I cry now because I'm learning to practice differently. I practice setting my intention that my yoga mat is sacred space. I practice more restorative poses and I no longer lift weights, train for long races, starve or overfeed my body. I practice telling myself what I am doing well. I practice accepting my yoga and myself as I am, indulging in less criticism and less fault finding. I practice softening more and hardening less and I laugh more. I practice asking God that my yoga be an offering of peace to my body. Every time my hands come to Anjali Mudra, I can offer peace to my body and honor it as the temple it is. When something hurts, I practice looking into it rather than ignoring my pain. In these ways, I know I am honoring my body and myself. I am making peace. Such a beautiful essay, Christina, and it, it holds so much. Something 
I really appreciate about how how that unfolds is um, it gives a picture into the the root of the pattern that yoga taught you to start undoing right at these young ages started to show up in these ways and then to to witness you know as we grow older how those behaviors turn into broader behaviors and um, to find at the tender age of 30 all the way back to the root how how this had been unfolding and changing form um, all those years and and then as you know we mentioned in our check-ins the tenderness of recognizing that um, and I just appreciate the depth and how quickly you got to like the fullness of that cycle and a question I have for you as you sit here now and read that essay aloud and feel into, you know, another 20 years of practice between then and now. I'm really inspired by the piece of the essay in which you say, every time I bring my hands to Anjali Mudra, it's a reminder that this practice can be an offering. And I know that feeling, I know that moment, I know that remembering well, and I also, as a practitioner, know the forgetting of that. <laughs> and I'm thinking about for myself at the age of um, 32, how there's still a tendency sometimes for me in my practice to um, fall into the old patterns as, as I'm recognizing, recognizing even still what the root of those are and all the ways that they have evolved into different aspects. Um, and so I, I have this pattern of recognizing like, oh shoot, I started using my yoga practice again <laughs> rather than rather than um, necessarily showing up with reverence and and letting my my practice be the prayer. And I wonder as you look back on this, what that cycle feels like for you if and when the yoga, ever <laughs> becomes um, the thing you're using or uh, maybe unconsciously coming to and what those patterns or cycles are like for you these days. Yeah, I think that it, uh, for me, all of that definitely opens and closes. Mm -hmm. One thing that stood out for me in rereading that essay was uh, you know, the repetition of the word practice. Uh, these are practices. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're contextual, you know, so um, you know, the context of what it might be to make an offering out of whatever activity we're doing or that I'm doing, um, of course, I think that open, that definitely opens and closes, that contracts and expands my remembering and forgetting as definitely in an interplay. I think when I was probably at that stage, one of the things that I thought yogic growth, if you will, would mean would be staying in a more open state more of the time or uh, kind of getting it. Mm. You know, and like leaving something behind and having this new way that I would be fully established in this new, awesome, peace-oriented way. 
And um, that hasn't been my experience. And when someone suggests that to me, I kind of think, okay, maybe lucky you. Yeah. I think there are turning points. I had a friend who is a practicing Christian and uh, still is. And he came to it later in life, kind of in a born again type experience. And, and he said that there are times in life we have to put a stake in the sand and mark a point on the path that says from this point forward, you know, you know, I'm a new creature in the Lord kind of thing, or I am working with this now, like this is it. This is, it doesn't mean to me that stake in the sand means, and then I'm forever changed in the sense of able to animate that reliably to be able to be the greatest example of said intention all of the time, but to say in some way to mark it, say that was then, this is now, and in the now I'm practicing according to this vision this understanding, this viewpoint, or you might say in yoga, I guess, darshana. Um, But one thing that I have for me now, yogic maturation and growth is less about changing the content of what I'm watching and more about being spacious with myself about whatever it is I'm watching. So what has changed isn't that I'm in some constant state of I love my body and I feel at peace with it all the time. Like that's not where I landed so far. I'm not bouncing around at that stage of the game. I'm more like, wow, I'm in a body image situation. I'm in its grips with, and when that happens for me, I don't feel the same kind of self-criticism about it. I feel less shame about it. So the, one of the things about, you know, any of us who deal with shame, which is most of us, <laughs> I'm going to say, I mean, maybe take it or leave it if it works for you. But uh, a lot of us, you know, uh, are dealing with that in different things, about different things. But it's how sneaky it can be. So it can have a stake in the sand moment, like I was saying about body image and that. I really feel the need to be different, the suffering of the old way, the passion for transformation, the longing, all of the richness of that territory. And then when it comes back, having made the written a book about it, I teach other people about it. And so for many years when it was surfaced for me, I felt like I shouldn't be having that happen. Mm-hmm. And so at one level, you know, it almost what goes underground. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like we have a whole generation also of of. I'm just going to say women. I'm not say I'm not saying it's a completely gendered thing, but the people that are coming to my mind as I'm about to say this are mostly women. So, um, who, in rejection of the body image paradigm of thinner is better all the time, kind of thing, you know, have embraced a different theory, and now there's shame about having a cosmetic goal or an aesthetic goal. Or about needing to lose weight for some health reason. And yes, you can have a healthy body at any weight. That's a different episode. (laughs) But when very specific people I know are not healthy at that weight. So it's not that you can't be healthy at any weight. You can be. But in these cases, these people aren't. Mm -hmm. And yet they have shame about uh, calorie, you know, monitoring of some kind or, or even let's say it's not a health issue, not actually being satisfied with um, how their body looks and they've worked on it with the body image piece. And now there's shame about, 
I'd like to just look a little differently. So pretty much anything, my point is, those are examples, can get commandeered by shame and have and keep us in a, a keep me in a kind of war, you know? And so I feel one of my places of growth has been not that I'm always observing something within myself that's so beautiful and awesome. Like a lot of times that you'll hear me say it in my conversations with you, I'm like, yeah, it turns out I'm a bit of an asshole, you know, like, <laughs> but, uh, or just, I know this is really not my highest minded thought about my body, but I really am not liking how I look right now. And it's got me. So I feel like more able to include that in, um, and even make space to say, I'm feeling shame about that. So, so I would say that one of the biggest pieces for me is um, that observer function. When I started really looking at it in terms of yoga, I thought it would mean I would observe better things about myself. <laughs> and, and, you know, but the thing is I'm more aware of what it is to just watch myself now. And then in a consideration, those stages of, and who is this that, that is doing all that watching? So um, that's a long little, you know, foray into saying I don't get on my mat every time and make Anjali Mudra a big metaphysical thing, you know, mm -hmm. not anymore. I did, you know, really work with that at that time and it was really necessary too. Um, and I think my understanding of my spirituality has really changed such that that's more of a context holding the whole game and not just of asana, but sometimes asana to me is clear the cobwebs, you know, just move and breathe. And sometimes asana to me is, you know, sometimes we have certain classes I might lay the theme on kind of thick. I'm like, yeah, this is good when you totally themeize the whole thing. Anjali Mudra and the offering and you do the thing. I, I kind of <laughs> like it, you know, some days. Uh, and other days it's internal rotation, external rotation, you know, <laughs> recruit this muscle. So, yeah, to me, all of it's contextualized in, in something that is hopefully at that movement towards piece and um the other thing that i wanted to say before we kind of pause on that is just when i was reading it i was also remembering that that whole kind of experience that i was writing about in that essay that came about with a workshop with john fran somehow what was happening was that i had a shoulder injury mm. so while he did say nice things to us as a group you know make every pose an offering and he themed it and all of that sort of thing what was happening for me and why it was happening was because I was dealing with a shoulder injury and in getting his help on how to work with the shoulder injury, there were three protocols of yoga therapeutics that he implemented. And one was the kind of alignment. So optimal alignment as weight bearing as possible with no pain. And in order to determine, keep those three kind of balls in the air, so to speak, no pain. I had to slow down so far from my normal mode that all of the other stuff came up. It wasn't coming up 
coupled with then from the outside, his narrative was really quite kind. And most of the teachers I had prior to working with him in Desiree had been very mil more militant, more martially oriented. And so that was this him speaking in this very kind of kind and expansive spiritual type language. Meanwhile, me having to operate so much slower with so much attention to the interior world of my pose that it just created so much space for the others, for the grief and for all of the difficult feelings to arise. And, and it made me see by paying that kind of attention to the no pain, it was such a highlight to, that was never a consideration for me with my body about it hurt. And I was trained, essay was really showing, oh, I was trained not to pay attention. So I feel like, um, you know, sometimes in the modern day narratives of body image and yoga, I know I feel like a lot of things are about what the teacher should and shouldn't say and what's inclusive and what's not inclusive and what's welcoming and not welcoming. And I think all that's good, you know, we should do our best. But a lot of this wasn't happening relative to a conversation about body image. It was happening to, relative to a certain way of practicing. Mm -hmm. And... It's like when we sit in meditation and, you know, Manorma will sometimes tell us, you know, it's like you, you TMI yourself and all the information, you know, you stop, finally stop moving, finally stop moving, finally being quiet and all the things <laughs> that are going on the inside have space to roam and it's like meeting ourselves in high def. So for me, slowing down, I was meeting my life history around my body in high def and it was painful. So, Yeah. That's a long, multifaceted answer to, uh, do I pr uh, put my hands on Anjali Mudra? No. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking as you're sharing about slowing down and also about shame. <laughs> and in that first paragraph in particular, to witness the ways that that pattern that was taught to you expanded far beyond body image, far beyond going, you know, being a gymnast and in darkness, shame grows. When we, when we hide it, it festers, it grows, it expands. And thinking about my own journey of, um, you know, the piece of yoga that definitely encourages a good psychotherapist, um, in the slowing down, for me personally, in this process of slowing down in the physical practice and seeing these shapes and or how we're doing the shapes as a metaphor for how we're doing our life, um, to see it, you know, maybe at the root of the, at the root of your behavior expressed in the, in the essay is, you know, a disconnection from your body and the body's wisdom and then all the ways that that was expressing out into actions and choices and personality and understanding of self. And it gets sneakier and sneakier, right? Like that piece of our ego that just attempts to perpetuate and, and to find what's comfortable, what's most known in those originating um, patterns. And you know, at the point in the essay too, that you said like, you know, I'm not lifting weights anymore, doing these things. And even as you and I were talking about this, you're like, well, I, I do lift weights again now. Something I love that my therapist says to me is stalk yourself. 
<laughs> like watch the behavior, sit with it long enough to be like, what's underneath this? What's there? I'm thinking about how the yoga teaches us that again and again and how as you've been in this practice with yourself for how many years now, what's it like to, you know, return to something like lifting weights in a way that doesn't feel like you're perpetuating hurt and harm, you know, to, to look at that specific activity or any activity that's like, well, before I repatterned this, that wasn't something that was a loving action. I think there's also just been so many changes in the world around of yoga, for instance, and in the world of fitness. So that's another moving stream. For instance, um, when I started yoga, there was really a quieter, more, fewer mirrors. There were a few way, no fancy clothes. There was no like yoga lifestyle brands and um, a lot of that can be fun, you know, so I mean, you want to grind an axe about the industrial complex of yoga, but because, um, you know, we're all here today knowing each other because of it. So there's a lot of good stuff that came from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <clears throat> I'm not sure that I would in today's milieu with the proliferation of uh, social media images and the competing narratives about what's right yoga, what's wrong yoga, and the hustle of the influencer culture being such a part of it all. I'm not sure that I would find a lot of body image relief there. I'm not certain that I wouldn't. But it's not the thing I got into. Yeah. So that's one thing. Also, in terms of the world of fitness, when I was, you know, 30 years ago, there was no option. Maybe you did a sport, you know, like there were the runners and there were the cyclists and there wasn't like, you know, so they were doing that thing. There were sports, I guess. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, you know, group exercise class, women went to aerobics and were taught to do cardio. And men, you know, would be in the weight room. And maybe if women lifted weights, there was, you know, they were on the circuits. And we were told not to get bulky or big. And uh, there was no functional fitness community. Mm-hmm. There was no be strong So you could bodybuild, which I got into, basically got, I was an aerobics instructor. And this guy who coached people in weightlifting looked at my body type and saw my work ethic in terms of working out and being there and said, I could train you and you could do a show. And of course, the sick part of my mind was like, yes, (laughs) I partly dysfunctional is a sick part of my mind, but also the part of me that had uh, some training as an athlete and liked to be coached. So Another piece of that essay that I was reflecting on as we've been sitting with it this week independently has been there's other good things that was happening at each of those ages as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so while those dysfunctional patterns were getting placed in at the gym, I learned how to go somewhere every day and show up consistently. I That serves me well as a yoga practitioner. I know how to practice because I learned how to practice regular, consistent practice I learned as a six-year-old. So 
when someone has never had a life of practice and unable to establish consistent behaviors over a long period of time and they come to yoga and their you know adulthood and that's their first real encounter with uh, consistent efforts over a long period of time separate from devotional efforts you know just practice and repetition um, it takes years to just be established in practice and the shame that can go along with that because you're supposed to do this every day. And, uh, and But it is a real thing. So when I look back at that essay now, I remember those touchstones of time periods, but there are also other things that were really good that served me well that I am aware of a part of my story now. So if I were to write an essay, it would be less one-sided now in retrospect. Um so, um, but there was, so, so some guy just picked, this guy, John, picked me up off the, basically out of the, you know, floor at the YMCA, just walking into aerobics and asked me if I wanted to do a bodybuilding show. He trained me for it. And I was like, sure, why not? You know? So, um, and I learned a lot from him. And then, uh, but that was kind of it. If you lifted weights, there was some bodybuilding, maybe you were doing two pound dumbbells with, to be toned. All right. So anyway, that was a whole era. And that era lasted a lot. It's still prevalent. Um, but the, you really, I think, with CrossFit, for all of the criticisms, particularly that exists outside of CrossFit communities, less within it. Um, but that kind of uh, model of where you could be athletic, uh, strong, and it not be appearance-based, that there's some performance aspect to it and just being functionally fit, that wasn't really a thing until I think about 2010 those kinds of gyms started to pop up. So there wasn't an option really that wouldn't be overly body image triggering for me at the time. It was, I really needed that kind of clean break because walk into the gym environment, it was all looks. And there was not really uh, places where, where fitness existed separate from aesthetics. Other than yoga. But now that aesthetic paradigm is not only prevalent in yoga, it's prevalent and under, my opinion, it's shadowed, meaning it's there. There's the yoga body, skinny aesthetic, longer, leaner is better, skinnier is better kind of thing. But we've now made that wrong and soft and shadowed. So we pretend it's not there. Royal we, not everyone, not everywhere. This may not fit for everybody, but my experience of it often is that it's still there, but we're pretending it's not. And that makes it even worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So some ways when I feel, when I go into, uh, you know, the gym that I've been going to and and part of that community is there is actually a greater diversity of size, shape among the people there. And in some ways, a much more body positive environment and a diversity of body types represented doing the things than in the average yoga studio. So it's kind of even apples and oranges. Like I actually feel really healthier in my body image around those people than I do going to some of the high level workshops that I've been to over the years where it's just flexibility, you know, the worshiping at the you know, alter of flexibility and, and, and a shadowed thinness culture. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel less triggered. So that's what's also sort of weird about it because it's not the same thing it was. 
I'm not the same either. I'm not the same either. Yeah. I mean, I really hear that. And even, you know, as you go into the details and, and the, the wide perspective on either of those spaces, yoga spaces and fitness spaces, what I'm hearing from you, Christina, is just like such clarity on a, your shadow, you know, you're not hiding that it is there. You're not unaware or pretending like that piece couldn't come up and such clarity on why you're there and what you're appreciating and what you're seeing and what's, you know, like um, shedding light where the shadow was trying to shed shadow. And especially in that space with fitness, you know, I, um, I did not grow up an athlete. I very much so I, I played goalie in soccer, the sport I was forced to do because I thought I wouldn't have to run if I was goalie. <laughs> like that's my background. Found my way to enjoying some volleyball, but was very much so um, never, never resonated with that title or that um, that idea. Which I think was even one of the reasons yoga felt accessible is because it felt other than fitness, right? Um, and I think it was like two thousand. 18 the first time I ever took a group fitness class and I can remember being there and being like oh my god this is fun and like you know like strong ass women and I think back to my original question of falling into these cycles of forgetting and ending up in either of those spaces in a way that might not be prayerful or from a space of offering and self-care. I think my tendency is that I just get moving too fast in life and those things become, this is what I do on Tuesday. I go at this time and I do that thing and the the busyness of it creeps in. And before um, I know it, that the shadowy root pattern has maybe seeped its way back into the present moment because the present moment has become mm, rushed. Yeah, I think too, you know, it's just uh, some yoga teacher years ago and he would say, uh, and you say the prayer of Thanksgiving for noticing and pay attention again. You know, that over time, you're going to expect that it's going to open and close rather than be surprised that it closed again. And I can always listen in people, uh, uh, one friend, and, you know, she's been out this a long time too. And every time she has an insight and she tells me about it, she really thinks this one is here to stay. <laughs> and I'm listening to her. I mean, she's not new. I listen to her like, it'll stay until it fades. I mean, you know, and then there, there's something else. So we'll fall asleep and we'll wake up. We'll fall asleep and we'll wake up. And uh, so I think it's the nature of those kinds of moments part of their nature is this was it. This one is really going to be, that's the nature of the, of the aha. Cause it can be, I think for me, so profound. So, oh, that, uh, for, you know, I don't want to be a buzzkill, you know, like, ah, so this, but this to be, you know, it's like this too shall pass like the hard stuff, but also this too shall pass when we're flying high. And it's like the, gates of heaven are open and remembering to remember doing it, you know, so that's going to pass the same way the deep uh, places of grief and upset, you know, they will pass. You might have a, you know, 10 year portal to go through, but it will pass in some way. And, um, 
I think part of growing older, maybe uh, for me, has been oh more understanding and trust in that process, like less shock by the opening and the closing, mm-hmm. um, a little bit less, and less shame about it as as it as it cycles through, and a little bit more humor with myself of oh I really did think this one was going to be the one that lasted. Oh, it turns out it wasn't again, you know, like that. So, um, but well, yeah, and I. I was thinking that, you know, when you were talking to that, I had this teacher who said, uh, he said it was an Upanishadic teaching, but I do not know which Upanishad or what verse or I haven't Mm -hmm. fact checked them. So, you know, it's a pretty reputable source. He was well studied, but I can't give the, I can't give this, the, you know, citation for it. But he said that there's an Upanishadic teaching that said uh, every, every subject can be liberative. And you know, so we might say that in you know, sort of modern yoga language, everything can be yoga. You know, it doesn't mean that everything is. It just means that it can be. <laughs> and it has the potential to be. And so, I mean, it, so there's a big consideration for me these days about, you know, is it yoga because of my intention behind it? Is it yoga because of the outcome of the effort? the deepening of self-knowledge and the capacity to express that understanding with greater degrees of alignment. Is it because of the content of the thing itself that makes it yoga? Is it yoga because it's called chaturanga and not a push-up? Is that why it's yoga? Or is it yoga because when doing said action, I have mindfulness, awareness, and intention behind it? You know, so is it in the contents? Is it in the effect? Is it in the intentionality behind it or in some, you know, blend of those things and um and so i think that you know in terms of whatever activity it is it can be done um mindfully it can be done with intention it can be done with great awareness in a sense we might say yogically and the same content that would qualify by the books is oh that looks like a yoga thing could be done with um lack of attention violence and so you know for me it's really not in the content and 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 what has changed for me over time is relative to my physical pursuits you know whether it's a postural practice or an exercise I care a whole lot less about that these days you know because for years I really wanted the narrative around it and needed the external narrative of it couched in all that spiritual language to remind me of what I was up to then it was very important that that container of explicit yogification <laughs> be around it. You know, and I wanted to look like, smell like, feel like yoga. And uh, my box for all that is really changed. Probably my students, it might bother them some. I'm like, I don't know, let's do some push-ups. You know, uh, I mean, I make this joke all the time in class. You know, Chaturanga, it's Sanskrit for push-up. Um <laughs> But if you're in a phase where the yogification, if you will, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, tra- not trappings, but all of the overt language and mood around it is important, then that's important. And then there's also, for me, like, I, I find that so many places and and less and less now am I dependent on the asana practice feeling spiritual, so to speak. For it to, for my life to feel deep. 
And so that kind of depth and the largeness of life that, you know, we talk about on here a lot as spirituality isn't dependent on that coming in and through asana in the same way, or even in through the Indian traditions that we might call yoga in the same way that that has opened up to be something really quite different for me, Mm. more more expansive. But I think I learned how to see that, how to find it, how to relate to all of that in those yogic studies. So I just feel now like, okay, well, that gave me a toolbox and a way of looking at myself and viewing myself that then with the help of some good psychotherapy and time, uh, I'm now not, I feel like, okay, well, well, really any subject could be liberative. Mm. Appreciating that reminder. Yeah. And you know, also it's the same way, uh, in the fitness world, you know, I was just after class the other day at the gym and talking to the owner and this other guy works out there. They were sitting around talking about a gym down the road and how, God, the form there is awful. And they just throw themselves with no attention to the details. And they just go in there and they were just basically was like, this could be two yoga people talking about this other yoga studio down the road and how they're not quite refined and how they do it. And then even the same narrative, but on the upside gets more people into working out and the access is easy. It's more. And it's like, and that's what we say. Oh yeah. Not everyone's ready for their, or, you know, I was like, Oh, this could just be a conversation between two yoga studios and two outlooks on how it's supposed to be done. And, so it's not really these kinds of things, you know, one of the best things about being in a larger field of participation for me lately, and rather than yoga, to see so many of the things that I felt like yoga's problems for years, they're just people problems. This is so, <laughs> it's so human, you know? I was, yeah, just thinking about, um, you know, the human intention for belonging and how we find our communities and our groups. And that's a you know, a pure intention that may or may not come out in these shadowy ways of othering and criticizing, but like at the root of it, sweet humans and thinking that earlier too, right. With that um, very relatable hope that like, this is going to be the thing that heals it. (laughs) What a sweet, worthy hope as humans that we have to to be our best and to feel clear and and um, on purpose with our actions and just the universal humanity to that. You know, we are fallible, sweet creatures. <laughs> yeah, and to recognize, I think for me, you know, when you're saying that, this, um, to recognize in that moment of expansion, you know, I think we are really close to the self there, you know, to something that's so, so much our true nature, you know? So, Oh, Oh yeah. There's just this pesky little problem about the other side of it, you know, (laughs) like, like I'm so close to my light that this is my true nature. And then it's like, Oh yeah. But there's also, there's also those, the nature of uh, it's going to close, you know? So it is sweet. It is tender wholesome in a way you know and then of course we can we can weaponize it against ourselves and one another so um yeah and i and i will probably talk about this more as the as the time through the book goes on but there was 
this is for you know menopausal women out there too, and those of us at a certain generation of the yoga practice. This is a little bit less, I think, for your generation of practitioners, but we were really sold of so much of yoga as an all-or-nothing endeavor, and and that a kind of promise explicitly and implicitly that if you just do the yoga, it will do all of the everything that you need. It was a one-stop shopping bill of sale, and it will keep you fit. It will keep you, you know what I mean, to run. And even if you do run and you get tight, then that's your problem because it'll mess up with you. So many of us didn't do things because it would make it so our, our yoga wouldn't be as, you know, good or as whatever. So, um, and it's its own, it was a kind of its own, in um, my view on that, like if I were going to talk to my, um, I understand why the person who wrote that essay needed to stop all of that. I really do. And I don't regret it. Mm. But when I look back on it, I might give her some advice that it's not doesn't need to be so all or nothing mm. for twenty five years all or nothing. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it could be, but there but there really weren't a lot of other options, you know. And and I think for me, because of some of the compulsivity and pain at the time, I did need to make a that was part of my stake in the sand, you know, making a clean break. But but why I'm saying also with menopause is for a long period of time. Doing a good, strong asana practice did kind of tick the boxes of the things I would want a fitness program to do for me. I was able to maintain a healthy body weight. I was able to stay reasonably strong in my body. I was able to, if I was practicing yoga fairly regularly and we would go to the mountains, I could take a hike and have enough fitness to do things like that. And um, But I will tell you, when perimenopause came I was having uh, trouble with my strength diminished, and I've always been a strong person. And it wasn't because I wasn't practicing. Mm-hmm. And my capacity to like do things such as walk up and down the stairs with strength in my legs. I was leaning against rails to go up and down. I mean, not like I couldn't get up and down stairs, mm-hmm. but, not, but I couldn't really get up and down stairs as well. And it wasn't because I wasn't doing yoga. So it wasn't like, oh, you're not practicing. It was because of the hormonal changes. And so the thing that that as a single focused kind of you know, exercise regimen, whether you think it's spiritual or not, most people are there dressed for gym class and it's some form of exercise for them was for me. Um, it didn't give me the result it, was give, it had given me prior to perimenopause. So I also began to reevaluate that as part of my aging process, what other activities I needed to do and had to give up a kind of loyalty to the thing that I had been sold about what yoga would do to me. I had to look around and say, it's actually not doing the same things for me. And, um, and and also then there are some other things of looking at several of my students who had only done yoga got on the other side of menopause and had osteoporosis problems mm-hmm. and maintaining a low body weight, only stretching for their life of exercise. And they got into their 60s and uh, were breaking bones pretty uh, in a scary rate, more than one. And my sister, you know, at 56, has, has a long lifetime osteo practitioner without other regimes, is just having, you know, a hip replacement. So 
there are some things that came into my sphere of observation through my own personal experience and through, um, you know, just, I don't have any studies on it. You know what I mean? This is all just the field of my relationships that made me question, wait, was I sold something that was, is that accurate? Basically the thing that I was told would be true. Mm -hmm. Is it actually proving to be true or do I need to do something else? And, uh, and just doing more yoga, um, it wouldn't, I couldn't actually just do more because then also I had to address my joints. So there was actually some very practical things that were in part of my com- my conversation of going to the gym and getting involved in some of the functional range conditioning that I've been bringing into our classes and changing some of the protocols that I use in my, well, let's just call it my exercise practices that uh, have been important for reasons that, you know, I couldn't have foreseen 20 something years ago when I wrote the book. And I do want to go on record that, you know, I'm saying those things influence my position. I'm not, I'm not on a rampage against the wonders of yoga, like trying to bash it or anything like that, you know, because that's some other people's work. You know, like, and yoga didn't do this for me. It's like, it, I feel like it got, it gave me a lot, you know, so mm-hmm. and um, I'm not on a mission to tear it down or anything like that. I'm really grateful for it and, and, remain, and, and really do like it. Mm-hmm. I still, you know, in a sense, find it valuable. Also, the world of exercise science and understanding uh, understanding even things like stretch physiology, that's been a growing field of endeavor during the time that we've been involved. I've been involved in asana. So even more is known than was known, you know, in the 70s when some of this came over with the baby boomer generation when they were in India, you know, in the 70s on their vision quests of their generation and bringing some of this back from India. And then we have a whole new industry you know, propped up on all of that all these years later. But, you know, science has continued on with understanding mm-hmm. how the body actually moves, functions, how you can train different layers of the tissue, what's good about stretching, what's not good about stretching, like where the liabilities are. And so, yeah, I got much more interested in, in, um, in whatever I'm doing being good for my body rather than for whatever I'm doing being categorized as yoga. If it's good for me, I'm good with it. I feel like we should pause here before we dive further into the book, into the conversation. But I appreciate um, all the thought and reflection and for bringing that essay back into um, bringing that essay into our awareness and sharing it once again. Yeah, and those of you who are listening, I'd love to have you just consider those sort of touchstones for you along your own journey with your body and invite you to reflect on what was happening when you were at different ages that were turning points or moments of either darkness or turning towards the light. How would your essay read?